For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. It is Monday, December 18th. I think this will always be known as the lost year in Hollywood, partially because of the writers and actors strikes literally shut down the industry from May through November, more than six months of this year. But even before the strikes, most people knew we were headed in that direction. So there was a lot of stockpiling and a reluctance to start shooting projects that producers feared would be cut off mid-shoot. That strike was clearly the debacle of the year in Hollywood. Billions in jobs and revenue lost. The entire industry disrupted in ways that I don't think are even being appreciated quite yet. But today for our Hollywood debacles of the year episode, we're going beyond the strike. We're going to ignore that big albatross. And instead, we've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg in here. And we're going to count down our other debacles of the year. These are financial debacles. If you want creative misfires, go to the big picture or the watch. We're not talking about MILF Manor here or Shailene Woodley's Italian accent in the Ferrari movie. These are Hollywood's business debacles of the year. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg, and this is like Christmas for you. I know you're very excited for the debacles of the year. You wait all year, and finally, our debacles of the year episode. Well, it gives me a week to get my <laughs> suit fitted for the townies. That's I true. Really this is not that. the townies. The townies is our awards episode for the year that will air in two parts next week. This is just the debacles of the year. And this year we have a caveat because obviously a six month shutdown of the entire industry is the debacle of the year. Uh, we don't need to debate it. It is, you know, the unmitigated disaster of Hollywood of 2023. Um, so these are the non-strike related, or you can pick something related to the strike, but the strike overall is the debacle of the year. Okay, I, so I'm going to let you go first. Do you have any initial thoughts? Only that I hope that the my runner-up for debacle of the year is something that you're going to use for one of our categories. Okay, So well, we'll see. And if there's and any if dispute not, here... If not, I'll, I'll, I'll deliver at the end. Yeah, we'll vote, we'll vote on our runner-up debacle of the year at the end if there's any disputes craig can get involved okay so let's start with the movie debacle of the year and i'll let you go first uh, mine was the decision by paramount to not move mission impossible uh, dead reckoning part one either up a week or to another date away from the barbenheimer weekend it opened the week before barbenheimer barbie took a lot of the oxygen out of the room. And as you've reported on a lot, uh, because of Christopher Nolan's relationship with IMAX, all the IMAX screens left Tom Cruise 
for Oppenheimer after a week. And so this movie that everyone, that was good, that everyone thought was going to be a big hit coming off of Tom Cruise and Top Gun, ends up being one of the worst performing Mission Impossible movies ever. And that was due, in my opinion, to the stubbornness on the distribution front, where they like looked at the calendar and were like, you know what, we're more scared of Indiana Jones than Barbie and Oppenheimer, which was a big mistake. All right, so let's be clear about this. Paramount does not lift a finger here unless Tom Cruise blesses it. So Tom Cruise is not blameless here. Tom Cruise was so upset about this that he was calling studio heads in the weeks before this happened to try to get them to relinquish their screens from IMAX. He had about nine days of IMAX exclusivity, and then Barbenheimer took them over. The movie ended up grossing, I believe it was 560 something million dollars, which whatever, not, not a disaster, nothing, but that movie cost more than $300 million, was coming off all the goodwill of his previous movie, and The Last Mission Impossible grossed way more than that. So it's so much so that they delayed the second part next year, this, yeah, in 2024 to 2025, and they're going to rename it because they feel like the part one was a problem for some people. It felt like homework. And I guarantee you next time he's going to have the IMAX situation squared away. I mean, this, the, the Indiana Jones thing was the big mistake because they feared that the adult male audience would be flocking to Indiana Jones for those first few weeks and that they did not want to put up a Mission Impossible movie against it. Turned out the Indiana Jones movie was not great and people did not want to see it. They could have capitalized, and they didn't. Yeah, nobody cared. Yep, poor Tom Cruise. Did you get a cake, by the way? Did you get one of his cakes? No, Tom Cruise has no idea who I am. Oh, Tom, Tom Cruise sends out holiday cakes. To no, I know. I know about the cakes. Okay. Um, if you're interested, in my, in my Puck newsletter last night, I included the recipe to make the white chocolate coconut flake cake that he sends out. Are you really going to make it, Matt? I am going to make it Christmas Eve. Wow. The family is already on board. Uh, it's not healthy, turns out. Lots of sour what cream, sugar, butter. <laughs> I'm not a big coconut cake guy, so I don't really want I'm not either, but I have I have read a little bit about this, and apparently the coconut seasoning is light. It's apparently delicious. I talked to a few people who have emailed me today saying it's worth the wait. It's worth making it yourself. It's, it's, uh, it's very good. Um, all right, so I'm going to go to my film debacle of the year, and I'm going to pick The Exorcist debacle. Going after Jason Blum. Going after Jason Blum. Blum had some hits this year. He had Megan. He had Five Nights at Freddy's. He's launched a couple new franchises. Blum will be fine. But The Exorcist, man, this is a movie that, uh, not just a movie, a franchise that Universal spent $400 million to acquire the rights and make the, they're going to make three movies based on this property. They put Ellen Burstyn from the original in. It's a direct sequel, I guess, to the original. And they thought they were going to Halloween this thing. And turns out people do not have the same love for The Exorcist as they do for Halloween. Big, big misfire. Ended up grossing about 150 worldwide. Not nothing, but this was supposed to be the next big universal franchise juggernaut. And it turned into a debacle. Do you blame them for putting up the money to try to do it? Or is it just the case where had they made a better movie, there would have been interest? Is it just an execution problem? Because my both. sense is the movie... 
people just thought the movie wasn't good. I feel like had the buzz around the movie been good, maybe it would have done better. Maybe yeah, not. I think both. It grows, it, the, the number is 135 worldwide. And I think if the movie was better, I think David Gordon Green did not make a great movie. Um, also didn't help that during, it was during the strike, so they couldn't get Alan Burstyn and the cast out there to, to promote. But I think that the horror audience, and Blum will tell you this if you talk to him, everyone says, oh, horror's easy. You just, you know, the jump scares and, and you put in some of the tropes of horror movies and people go, no, it's not easy. You have to execute. And this movie didn't. But I also think they overestimated the demand for an Exorcist movie. It is, yes, one of the biggest franchises of all time in the horror space. But they've done remakes and spinoffs before. And God knows how many movies involving exorcisms. Yeah, of course. Of course. And, you know, Ellen Burstyn is great, but that movie was 50 years ago now. And it's not like bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis, who is like the scream queen that everybody wants to see in this type of movie. So I think they just they overshot. They got cocky after Halloween and it came back to blow up in their face. Okay, enough. Let's go on to TV debacle of the year. You get to pick. This is partially a TV debacle and partially just a broader debacle, but we'll start with the shutting down and then unshutting down of Turner Classic Movies. Oh, I was going to pick that. All right, go go ahead. This is one of five, six, seven PR failures by by David Zaslav this year at Warner Brothers Discovery. Very strong year by Zaslav. Very yeah, really put up really put up the numbers. um, You know, (laughs) he's working overtime. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the speech at Boston University, the can party, yanking. I mean, honestly, we could have gone with the killing of of, a, of streaming movies. There were just so many things that he did. But the Turner Classic Movie decision managed to piss off sort of all of these important filmmakers who he had spent the beginning of his tenure, really even before he took over Warner Brothers, trying to charm. And he has had to spend the several months since then trying to win back their trust, going going to people like Scorsese and Spielberg and Paul Thomas Anderson to help them win points with these people who were so mad at him. Yes. And then he put Terry Press in charge of it, who is one of Spielberg's confidants. Uh, she's been on the show before. And he really had to do a tail between the legs thing. And it's not, again, it's one of those things where financially the decision made sense. Like these are dying cable networks. If you can cut costs, TCM was more expensive than it probably should have been given the ratings. But what it underestimates is the problem he keeps coming back to is that these things have meaning within the creative community and very powerful people uh, are not the kind of people that you want to anger when you're running a movie and television studio. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that almost everything that, not almost, but most of what he does has a logic to it. But the sort of, the 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 soft side, the understanding of how people feel about things that is so important in this industry, the relationships part of it is something that he just routinely ignores, as well as how things are perceived publicly. And look, it may not matter in the long run, but it definitely damages them in the short run. And you talk to people in the the film community and they just don't like this guy. <laughs> they like him personally. He's very personable. Yeah, when you talk he's, to a, him. he's he's a great person to have right. a conversation with. Yeah, I, I, they, they don't. I should say they don't like the strategy. And we'll see. You know, bringing in this is more movies, but bringing in Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi to run the movie studio has definitely helped. He can he can recover there. But on the TV side and 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 with TCM and with canceling a lot of projects, he just has not done himself any favors. All right, uh, my TV debacle of the year. I can't believe you didn't see this. The Idol. 
<laughs> I mean, talk about Keep it this in is the like, Warner Brothers Discovery family. Another Warner Discovery thing. This is the HBO show starring The Weeknd and uh, Lily Rose Depp. Uh, I, I mean, 75 million reported budget. It was a disaster from the second they greenlit it. They shut it down. They had Sam um, Levinson from Euphoria come in and redo the whole thing. It, it turned into, <laughs> from what I've talked to people, that it turned into an even bigger disaster. Uh, the show, not good. The press around it, worse. Some of the allegations. And then it was the gift they kept on giving because the guy who got fired off the show and sued ended up being the guy who was responsible for releasing the Casey Bloys emails in which he directed his staff at HBO to malign some critics on Twitter. Um, so that was not a good PR moment for him. Uh, he apologized, and I think he kind of made the most of it and and moved on. But The Idol, man, that show like just kind of cursed everyone it touched this year. Yeah, it was funny. I got one of those year-end reports showing like the most, the Google search or most searched for movies, TV shows, all those things. The Idol was like the fifth most searched for TV show this year. <laughs> and it wasn't because anyone was watching it. It's because people just wanted to read about what a disaster it was. Yeah, I know. And like the weekend, do you think he recovers? Well, one, I do think that people at that level of fame, even if he knows that it was a disaster, like maybe doesn't really think it was a disaster and thinks he can do whatever he wants. Um, and he, you know, oh, I'm sure he on. does. But does anyone who will hire him? Think I think, yeah, he'll get another shot because I don't know that they'll put all of that on to onto him. But he probably he probably would be best served to take a few years before he tries again. All right, let's move on. This is my favorite category. This is the underrated disaster of the year, the underrated debacle of the year. You get to choose. I'm venturing into sports for this one to okay. something near and dear to my heart. We'll just say the Pac-12. As the underrated, oh, year. you know what? Like, okay, for that is not underrated in my world. It's something I bitch about constantly to my college friends. <laughs> so, for those who haven't paid that close attention, all the look, we're at this moment where even if the market for sports rights has is plateauing a little bit or is not as crazy as it was a couple of years ago, you know, the big college sports leagues, the big co can get huge deals. You know, the SEC, Big Ten, even Big Twelve. Uh, have done really well. And the Pac-12, which has a couple of the best co sports colleges in the country and, and many top ones. I mean, this season, they were, they had like six teams in the top 25 at one for point. For a while. For they completely screwed up its negotiations. So much so that the league will cease to exist because USC and UCLA are going to the Big Ten, which should really be called the Big 20 at this point. And then you've got other schools going to the ACC. And you've got only three or four schools left in the original Pac-12 around. And it's just a... Two. It's, it's, just it's, two, it's, I believe. Washington State and Oregon State. Yes, it's two teams. And they're going to have to like align with some other the league. Mountain West, Mountain West or something. It's a really crazy indictment of the, the job done by the Pac-12 commissioners that you have the conference representing the West Coast, which produces the highest share of the top athletes in many, many sports. And they couldn't even figure out how to sustain themselves. It really is an embarrassment. And everyone involved should be ashamed of themselves and never work in this business again. I agree. The Pac-12 shouldn't have been a problem. They should right. have been able to get a good deal. I know. They should be absorbing other leagues. We should have like Wake Forest and SMU clamoring to join the Pac-12, not Cal and Stanford joining the freaking ACC. All right. That's another rant. Apologies to you as a Cal fan. 
Yes, exactly. All right. My underrated disaster of the year is the Hassan Minaj Daily Show debacle. And this is something I don't think people paid close enough attention to this. Obviously, The Daily Show has been going through its search, which seems like it's lasted two or three years now for a replacement for Trevor Noah. They actually had a closed deal with Hassan Minaj. I reported this a few months ago. The terms were all set. They had not papered the deal yet, but his representatives considered this a closed deal. They had all the major deal points done, and then they sat on it during the strike because they did not want to announce the deal when everybody was out on strike. And during that period, The New Yorker published this very damning article about how he had made up a bunch of things about uh, in his stand-up act and anecdotes that he had presented as things that happened to him were what he called, quote, emotional truth and didn't actually happen. The backlash was pretty severe. If people were mixed on how big of a deal it was, though. The, the comedy community did not think that he deserved that. I, I agree. But when you have a property like The Daily Show, which is a quasi news and entertainment program, the thinking at Paramount Global and Comedy Central was that you can't put someone in that chair whose credibility on the news part has been questioned. He's going to be in there interviewing top newsmakers, top media people, and they did not want someone who had had this scandal uh, over his head. So that deal implodes, even though it was already done. He had the job. This was not, they were not going to do this new round of people in the chair this, this, these past few months because they had given it to Hassan Minaj and then they took it away. And to me, that is the underrated disaster of the year. Who do you blame most for that? You know, it's tough because it's like many things in show business, like, there's not a right and wrong. Like, I think even the people at Comedy Central feel awful about this. It's not like they want to punish him, but it's there, show there business. Are people left at Comedy Central? Well, I, I mean, the people at the parent company, <laughs> you know, the, the Chris McCarthy group at uh, Paramount Global that now runs Comedy Central. It's out of their hands. It's not like, I mean, you can get conspiratorial and say maybe they planted this. Someone planted it, but I don't think it was people at Paramount. But it's out of their hands. It's out there now. It's, you know, they would have had to deal with this. It would have become a problem if they had hired him. And they still have the ability to pull it back. I think the lawyers are involved now and he wants to be paid out because he believes he had a contract. But it's it's just a tough situation. I don't I don't know that you blame anyone, really. Yeah. I was a little confused by all of it. One, the daily show, especially with Trevor Noah gone, I just feel like that show is kind of withering and dying. Okay, but it's still something. It's still yeah. the one like franchise that Comedy Central has that you can use to say to cable carriers, you can't drop Comedy Central. You'd be dropping The Daily yeah, Show. It's that, it's that in South Park. Yeah. I don't know. This stuff doesn't matter to me. I still enjoy Hassan Minaj's comedy. This scandal does not matter to me. But also, I'm not hiring for The Daily Show, and you got to take yeah. that seriously. So, Well, you could, you, could, you could go up for the job now. I could, yes. No, I, I, I don't know who they're going to pick, honestly. I've heard so many different names and theories, and it'll be interesting to see which direction they go. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 
miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, next one. Let's go to the maligned executive decision of the year. The worst single executive decision. I'm going to go with Bob Iger's Sun Valley interview. Oh, okay. All right, that's good. This polished media CEO sits down with his old pal David Faber at the media retreat in the ski res- at the ski resort, although it's the summer, so really just hiking. And he, one, just starts casting about for potential deals that the company may or may not do, which Disney's ultimate position spin on it was it led to a lot of offers that they otherwise would not have heard, which may, may be true, but he then decided not to sell any of it, so it wasn't it didn't work. And then perhaps more importantly, and this is where we get strike adjacent, he just pisses off the entire guild, uh, the Writers Guild and the Actors At the Guild with his comments. absolute wrong time. Like the worst possible timing. Now, again, they got a deal, but who knows how many weeks or months Iger sticking his foot in his mouth there extended anything. Um, yeah, he, he, he just told all these people that they were being unreasonable and asking for things that they shouldn't get. And then they ended up getting a lot of them. And it made him look really out of touch for a guy who has always been so good at those moments. Yeah, that's the weird thing about Iger. We've talked about this before, is that the... He seems to have lost that ability to say the absolute right thing at the right time. And I don't know if that's a sign of that his communications person from the first round of being CEO is now at TikTok, or if it's an, an age thing where he's kind of lost touch a little bit, or if it's just that he kind of stepped outside the zone. And, uh, you know, it's also that he doesn't have great news often. Yeah, I think a big about. part of it is that it's that he's in a different situation. It's easier to manage things well when things are, for the most part, going well. It's much harder when, you know, if if your company appears troubled, people are going to read negativity or negatively into certain things um, that they otherwise would have let go or might have seen in a different light. Yeah. And now he's got this potential proxy fight with Nelson Peltz and Ike Perlmutter and now Jay Rusulo. It's like the super friends of disgruntled ex-Disney people who are coming together to fight the overlord, Bob Iger. Do you think Peltz is going to get his people on the board? No. I don't either. I actually wonder, my colleague at Puck, Bill Cohen, has questioned whether Peltz is even going to actually fight the proxy war, like officially, like nominate 
the potential. Well, last board time members. he ended up going away, but like pocketed a profit. And I feel mm. like something similar might happen here is if, if he can get a spike that makes him some money, he'll go away again. But he is allied with Ike Perlmutter, who has a huge axe to grind with Iger. So maybe he'll just keep at bothering him until he goes away. And these dudes have endless money and nothing better to do. I mean, I don't know what the special is on Tuesday night at Mar-a-Lago, but it's probably not as interesting as getting on CNBC to fight with Bob Iger. Yeah, it's a, it's a chicken parm. Okay. Oh, it is? Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My executive malign decision of the year. And honestly, this is, I mean, this is a personal decision that that sort of blew up and became a public thing. But like Jeff Shell, man, you know, the, the CEO of Brutal. NBC Universal having to step down because of a personal relationship with a subordinate that, surprise, surprise, was weaponized against him when she didn't get what she wanted in her new contract, had to step down in April. Like, guys, what are we doing here? It's 2023. Like, do not do the sexy text thing with subordinates. <laughs> in fairness to him, the relationship, I believe, predated the, the Me Too movement. But you're right. It just was sort of a, such a classic and colossal unforced error where this guy ends up losing his job because he carries on uh, an, an affair with someone who worked for him. And, and it's unclear what actually happened. I've heard, you know, rumors that they, it wasn't actually an affair. It was really just kind of a flirty text and phone relationship. I, I don't know. But, and he is going to come back. He's in negotiations right now with Redbird Capital, the um, private equity firm that's in a bunch of things like Ben Affleck's company and they are buying the Telegraph or that's a different joint venture, but with Jeff Zucker and they potentially could be the, the buyers of Paramount if that happens this year. But um, Jeff Shell, very nice guy. I've always had a good relationship with him, but like, come on, man, like it's 2023. Yeah, it wasn't so bad that it tarnished him such that he, he can come back because right. he wasn't a scumbag. Totally. It's not like he's radioactive. And you know, same with Zucker. I mean, Zucker, who's also with Redbird Capital now, Zucker's relationship with his communications person that was the, the cause of his being fired from CNN. We all knew about that. I knew about it. You knew about it. It was a joke at our New York party at, at Hollywood Reporter a couple of years ago. There was some page six item about them screaming at each other like, you know, like a married couple. Like everyone knew about it, but uh, they used it. Do you think the Jeff Shell thing was weaponized against him because they wanted him out? Or do you think that it was one of those things where the Roberts oh, family like found the, out about it. The said, conspiratorial where the, the I'm just floating it. I'm just floating it. I don't think so. I even though there were there was some skepticism of his his decisions and strategy and all of that. Um, I do think that he had a good relationship with Brian Roberts and with Comcast leadership. And if they had wanted to get rid of him, they didn't need to fabricate something. They just would have done it. And it seems way more likely that her that the the woman with whom he had this relationship. Uh, to your point, just like d was getting pushed out as part of cost cutting and saw her moment to try to strike back. Okay, here we are. Drum roll, please. We are to the debacle of the year. Now, keep in mind, the strike is the Death Star debacle of the year. This is the runner up we are debating. So you pick your pick. I will pick mine. Uh, we will decide which one is the most worthy of this. And if we dispute, then Craig will decide. Well, mine was Zaz. 
Oh wait, you're you're just picking David Zaslav as the but I'll, debacle I'll do, of the year. But I'll, I'll then do I'll then do something else because I I think from a PR perspective, yeah, PR. But give, I mean, I, that's why I, I'm picking a different one. Okay, PR is PR. I guess mine will then just be like the Paramount situation. Okay, so g- give me your argument. This is a company that it's been challenged for for a long time, but other than their their recent little nice uptick, I think their market cap is like. $10 billion. It was $30 billion when those two companies, Viacom and CBS, were put together. They turned down to sell two different assets of theirs, BET and Showtime, that collectively would have valued those two at basically $5 billion or, or almost $5 billion. That's half the net present worth of the company. I don't think anyone thinks those are two, two of the most valuable assets. Um, you know, we've discussed some of the problems on on the movie front. The TV picture, they they're not investing for the future in any way. They basically, you know, they've rebranded Showtime Paramount Plus with Showtime, but they're basically killing Showtime, cutting costs. They're doing sort of their classic strategy in recent years, which is we're gonna take the linear network and we're gonna just rerun things all the time. We're gonna save a lot of money, we're gonna fire people, but it's not clear what the plan for the future is. And that's just not a, a pretty place to be. Yes. It's the ridiculousness sizing of the entire company. Just run it all the time, reruns, milk the money, and do not plan for the future. It's embarrassing. Sherry Redstone should have sold this company a while back. It's getting less valuable every single day. The stock would go way up tomorrow if they killed Paramount+. Plus. Like, there's cost savings there to be had, and they are not going to win the streaming wars. So what are they doing? And that's the question they have. It's, uh, I think, going to be one of the big narratives of 2024 is where this company is going to end up, whether it's going to be sold for pieces. Sherry Redstone has decided, at least for you know most of this year, that she was not a seller. Recently, she has had a change of heart and is now entertaining offers. Good for her. It's a weird situation because National Amusements, which she controls, owns 80% or so of the voting rights in Paramount Global but only about 10% of the actual economics of it. So there are stockholders in Paramount Global that actually own more of the economics than the Redstones, including Warren Buffett and a couple of others. Yet she controls the decision-making on what to do with the company. And the voices are going to grow louder as next year comes along to get out, sell either national amusements or sell Paramount or sell the pieces, do something. They've got to do something. So I agree. That's probably the the debacle of the year uh, on a broad sense. I'm going to pick something smaller that I think had ramifications throughout the year uh, of the strike. And that is the Deadline.com article (laughs) that appeared right before the strike vote that I think was completely irresponsible to run this article, if you missed it, it was an anonymous executive who was quoted saying that the whole goal is to bleed out the writers, to make them lose their homes, to make them homeless and squander their mortgages, and to then come back to them when they are on their knees and ready to negotiate. And I, I mean, I don't want to name anybody. I, I am 99% sure I know who this person was that was quoted in the article. This is not the kind of person that has any power within 
the actual AMPTP or the Studio Coalition. I know the studios were very upset that that article ran. I know, obviously, the writers were very upset that that article ran. And I would never have published it. And I think it did lasting damage to set the tone of these negotiations in such a fevered and adversarial pitch that it lengthened the strike beyond where it would have gone. Man, you just love going in on the trades. No, I don't. I, I Listen, I'm from the trade. I, I worked at Hollywood Reporter for 14 years. That's why I know better. THR would have never done that story. Never. Do you think Bloomberg would run that story? Well, we don't really do anonymous quotes. So but, no. <laughs> okay, say you, say you are... We do occasionally, but no, I mean, I, I thought it was, it was ridiculous when I read it. It definitely provoked a strong reaction. I was shocked that it ran, shocked that anyone said it. I shocked, I was honestly shocked that people took it seriously. That's the I don't know. thing. That's the only thing that made me upset. It's like, there's a million dumb trade stories a day, like press releases and agendas and whatever, like ignore it. But this was something that the writers immediately seized upon and it offended them so much that it was like, fuck these guys. We're going on strike. And you know what? Call us when you guys when you guys are losing your homes because you don't have our work to put in your your platforms. Yeah. Uh, it was honestly something that nobody should have said out loud. I mostly blame whoever said it. You would have run it. You would have run it if you had been running deadline.com. No, not as a blind item. Yeah. It offended me more as a as an editor of one of these publications that uh I would have said absolutely not. Not now. You know especially not on the eve of a potential strike to just drop a bomb like that in the middle of the negotiations, like just irresponsible. Now I just want to know who said it since you're 99% sure. I don't, yeah, because I'm only 99, I do not want to go there. Uh, but it doesn't matter who said it, even if it was Bob Iger. Well, it does it. matter who said it because if Bob Iger said that on the record, like that's... Oh, on the record, obviously. That's yeah. a huge story. It's a huge story if if even someone in quasi power at a studio says that on the record in a professional setting. But this was not that. This was something different. All right. Those are our picks. What's the debacle of the year? I'm I'll go with you. I think the Paramount situation, I agree, is the debacle of the year. And the number two debacle. The number two. The strike itself is the debacle of the year. And I don't want to blame anyone for the strike. I mean, if you depends on what media you read. Um, either the strike is the 100% fault of the studios for not giving the writers everything they wanted right away, or the strike is the fault of the talent for, you know, holding the industry hostage for six months so they could get minor pay raises and some protections that the studios will now try to work around. So I don't want to take a side on that, but I do think overall the strike is the debacle of the year. The Paramount situation is the runner-up debacle of the year. You agree with that, Craig? Yeah, but I feel like we we have to mention the fact that this is the end of the superhero era in 2023. That was not mentioned. The Flash, oh. Blue Beetle, the Marvels. I mean, this is a superhero debacle. I know. This is your big the issue. The Flash slash DC was, was, was probably my runner-up for movie debacle of the year. This is the year that the average person's opinion about superhero movies officially permanently changed. Maybe we'll save, save that for the townies. We'll have some fun item on that. But yeah, I mean, you could have shoehorn this into the David Zasloff item, the Warner CEO, because he famously declared The Flash to be his favorite superhero movie of all time. Um, not something you want to do 
when you are trying to put out a movie and have the audience decide that, not the CEO of the company releasing it. But he did it anyways. And it grossed $275 million worldwide on a budget of about $250 million. I think the fact that the star of that movie uh, was not available to promote because of personal issues uh, also had a, a big factor in that. But yeah, The Flash, not great. All right, Craig, is there a trophy or something or debacle of the year? Like, do we send Sherry Redstone something? I think it's Tom Cruise's cake. That's what you get. Oh, the bunt cake. You get yeah. the Tom I'm Cruise assuming cake. Sherry oh, gets that. Are you? Yeah, I'm assuming Sherry gets like multiple cakes. <laughs> she is the number one financier of that cake purchase. She pays him so much money. So yeah, she's getting a cake. Her kids are getting the cake. Bob Backus, the CEO, is getting a cake. Brian Robbins at Paramount also getting a cake. Um, I think many, many people at Paramount are getting cakes. Maybe not. Rich Gelfman, the CEO of IMAX this year. But, you know, he's got to curry favor with him because he's got the, uh, you know, the next one coming. He wants the good IMAX dates. All right. That is the show for today. No call sheet. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw, producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.